I think it's important for us to appreciate the difference between chronological age and biological age. If you imagine your body to be a machine, yeah. then like every other machine, you have to put the right fuel in the right. machine. And you can have lots of that fuel, provided it's the right type of fuel. <laughs> How many seconds can you stand on one leg? How many push-ups can you do in a minute? They are very powerful indicators to what your biological age is. Uh, this person Yamanaka who won Nobel Prize for coming out with these factors, you know, which are part of every cell. Yeah. Basically, if you can reprogram them, yeah. Yeah. you can make the cell believe that I am not a 50-year-old cell, I am exactly. much, much younger. Yeah. Like you do your car, right? You service your car every year. You just got to service right. the other machine, your yeah. body as well. 70% of over 70s will not be alive in 12 months. 70% of over 70s, right? That's a massive number. Hello, I am Mukesh Pansan. Welcome to Sparks. Our guest today is Marcus Rane. Marcus is a well-known human longevity expert and a biohacker. He's founder of the company Human Age, which is solving for human longevity. He has also written the book Human Age, where it breaks down all the principles involved in extending human lifespan. He is an avid athlete. He has run numerous marathons. He has also organized treks to some of the remotest corners of the world. In this episode, we break down the science of longevity, how far the field has come, what the actionable tools are, what are the things that you and I can do to improve our lifespan and health span, where the field is headed, what is the future of human longevity, what are some of the new and exciting trends around the world? There is a lot to take away from this episode and a lot of actionable tools that you can implement in your life today. Good morning. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you. I'm very excited about this conversation. Longevity is, I think, one of the topics that I really care about. I got into this space about 15 years ago. My journey started with the Ray Kurzweil book you might have come across, Fantastic Voyage, you know. Yeah live long enough to live forever. Since then, I have tried to explore this field. I thought I was one of the very first, you know, few people in India to look into this space seriously. And then I met you, I realized you've been doing basically this all your life. Hmm. How did your interest in the space of, you know, cutting edge of human performance in the science of longevity start? Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, it's such a beautiful environment to be here, surrounded by all these books. Um, many of which I see, I've read quite a few of them, so it's great to see that similar interest. I think for me, it started in a place like this. Some of my earliest memories, so I grew up in the south of England, and some of my earliest memories are long afternoons in libraries, scouring through as many textbooks as I could find to find things on biology, because that's what I love. I, you know, I always call myself a student of biology. I think nature has given us this incredible machine. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was always this journey about understanding how I can make the most of it on this time that I have here on this planet, right? Career has zigged and zagged, but ultimately my North Star has always been understanding the human body and just getting excited by it. Super refreshing to hear. You know, one of the things, you know, I intend to talk about on this part, because again and again is if one can make, you know, your interests, your hobbies, your passion into profession, that's probably the best way to pursue exponential impact because it does not feel like work at all. You know, you are in it, you are doing something that you really enjoy, literally playing every single day. And yeah. then as a result, you can do that for a very long period of time and yeah. things add up, things compound, right? Yeah. And you can create incredible impacts. So yeah. really glad to see mm. that you are able to 
transferred your childhood interest and love for books and love for biology yeah. into a career and you are yeah. doing amazing things i think one of the you know i was going through your background markers and i was um quite inspired to see you have been to you know some of these extreme spots all around the earth right it must have been exhilarating you know to go yeah. out there but what was the context and what took you to all these places i fell in love with adventure through the textbook yeah. so what happened was um in high school biology and as i thought about what i wanted to do i have always thought okay it's got to be something involving human biology right so my first degree was in physiology mm-hmm. and i studied at university college in london but at the time i had signed up and i was serving in the royal air force mm-hmm. right? my father is ex navy my grandfather was ex royal air force so there's sort of this idea of service and and military so i got attracted towards this idea of of uh, of service and it was in that period of time where i was studying physiology and working with these incredible human beings at the extreme edge that i discovered how the body manifests adapts and becomes this incredible machine when you push into the envelope of performance and that's when i got to do these various expeditions i led a medical expedition to mount everest i took another one to the arctic i then uh, was invited to work at nasa on the human spaceflight program really looking at cardiovascular changes heart remodeling in a microgravity environment mm-hmm. on the international space station so that was sort of the bug that bit me right mm-hmm. the human body is not this frail imagination that we sometimes think about when we think about disease and old age it is this incredible machine which has evolved over hundreds and thousands of years and generations to make us who we are today and if we can understand what is going on at the cellular and the subcellular level mm-hmm. then how do we use that to then unlock the best the most exponentially impactful mm-hmm. to use your phrase version <laughs> of ourselves that we can be so amazing so high school textbooks can be inspiring exactly oh, exactly I I can relate to that a lot in yeah. I think same thing happened to me when I was in high school yeah. it was not biology at that time it was maths mm. but I really fell in love with the whole subject and mm. it was you know just so pleasurable you know yeah. just to spend time with math and eventually that's what you know led to some of things you know about admission to engineering college and so on yeah but uh, it's um, those formative years you know yeah. what happens in that age of you know 10 to 18 yeah. and what catches your attention and yeah. you know willingness to invest time in that you know can translate into yeah insane things over a period of time yeah any other you know you know just maybe since you're talking about childhood any other childhood uh, impressions or experience you think which have shaped you what do you end up doing eventually um i've always been uh um i wouldn't say playful but i've always appreciated the fact to look beyond what exists right in front of you mm-hmm. right um i think a lot of and i've got young children as yeah. well right we were talking about that earlier so I think a lot of us fall prey to this idea that there is a path and I just need to stay on that mm-hmm. path and A will lead to B B will lead to C right. etc. And we sometimes forget that the world is a much more incredible complicated and um and and we can look to the left and look to the right and stitch things together. Right so I've always been someone who's been sort of looking over the edge and and seeing what's next to come what can be you know innovative or or creative and then try and say okay now how did this all piece together. So I don't know if it was one moment or mm-hmm. or just through a collection of things but that's how I've built my career. Right. And um I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up but that's okay. Yeah. I'm just playing with it. I think the better idea is to never grow up. Yes, you know? exactly. 
Yeah. As I said, you know, we yeah. live in such a interesting world and things yeah. are now changing so fast. Yeah. yeah. Why grow up, you know, yeah. why act like a grown up while when you have the opportunity to keep learning, keep reinventing yourself, you know, keep exploring new things. Mm-hmm. So you've already touched upon the fact that you, know, you were interested in biology growing up. Yeah. You liked exploration. Yeah. You got fascinated with the limits of, you know, human body. Yeah. Very early in your first job in your early 20s. Yeah. I think and the reason is important, you know, one of the other things, you know, Marcus, I intend to talk about is part of pursuing, you know, anything is to really get to know yourself. Yeah. And it's surprising how often the clues are hidden in our early childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Right, in our formative years. Yeah. So if one can get in touch with those things, you know, what gave you true joy and pleasure yeah. when you were at that age? Yeah. It may you know it may seem like a distant memory, but yeah. a lot of things I do today, yeah. I can trace it back to and you know, I look when I talk to, you know, high performers, high achievers, I say look very often than not, mm. like you just mentioned, you know, mm. the clues to what you're doing now yeah. lies into things, you know, that caught your attention when yeah. you're very early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, you know, talking about all these extreme places you've been to. Yeah. What are some of your favorites? Oh, wow. Out <laughs> um, of them? They're all favorites. It's like asking which is your favorite child, right? They're all they're all favorite for different reasons. But I've got two things that I love. Yeah. I love mountains. Right. Uh, and I love um, cardiovascular mm-hmm. fitness, right? right? Those are two things that I'm really, really passionate and, and get really geeky about. Yeah. So I've had the fortune. I've, I've taken a, a, a group to Mount Everest. I spent a month on the mountain uh, and that was an incredible experience. I was quite young then. I was 23 or 24. And Mount Everest all the way? No. I, so I led the group to Mount, to base camp. Mm-hmm. And then as part of the university that I was with, University College London, there was a, a group of doctors that went up all the way to the summit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, interacting with them and spending time, it was it was amazing. Uh, they, uh, I, I remember till today, uh, the group who went to the summit got a femoral artery sample. Mm-hmm from here deep in the groin at just off the balcony. So that's at 8,000, I want to say 8,200 or 8,300 meters mm-hmm. high. And the oxygen concentration was 2.6 kilopascals. It was literally almost like the color of your t-shirt, really black blood. Uh, and it just showed us how incredible human adaptation can be. Because when you see patients in the ICU, their oxygen concentrations are much higher than that, but they're struggling to survive, mm-hmm. right? So that was part of the, the whole idea. So. Mountains have been fascinating. I was I was on uh, I summited Mount Kilimanjaro last year, and for me that was a hugely almost spiritual like experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, being on a standalone mountain, glaciers, the sun coming up, the curvature of the earth it was just it was incredible. Uh, so that's a very special thing for me, and I always love going back to mountains. Mm-hmm. And then the other is sort of cardiovascular stuff. So uh, running. Um, even my thesis dissertation at, at, at my first degree was looking at, sort of, as I said, cardiovascular changes yeah. around microgravity. So those are the two things that I like to do. Um, my most recent trip, Mukesh, was now, where was it? About two months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, we uh, were in the Arctic Circle. Uh, we traversed one degree, yeah. uh, which roughly equates about 110 kilometers. The North Pole? Uh, not all the way to the North Pole. We were at 68 uh, degrees, oh, okay. um, minus 30 degrees, uh, fully self-supported, so I was pulling the pulk behind all the weights, but it was incredible. What what, what took you there? What was the motivation? Mental resiliency, actually. I was part of a group from the UK that was raising money for a charity around mental health, right. and a number of people who were on the trip had personally suffered, uh, family members who had lost their lives to suicide. Mm-hmm. 
And so they were raising money for a local charity and we were having lots of conversations around mental resiliency. And we used the environment of extreme cold as the vehicle to have those conversations. Amazing. Because it's in those moments mm-hmm. where we all have our doubts as we do in business right. and, and every other aspect, we all have our doubts. But if we can expose ourselves, our brains to this idea that there are no limitations, right. like your first <laughs> book, right? Uh, there are no limits, then how can we become accustomed to that? And that's where the magic happens to become bigger, better versions of ourselves. So how does one get into these expeditions? If I want to join you in one of these extreme expeditions, I don't first of all know whether I'm fit enough or how does one prepare and how does one get an invitation to join you? (laughs) One of these, you know, crazy adventures that somehow are part of your everyday life. I think the fitness level, that's a good point actually, because a lot of people think that this is not something for me, this is only something that other people can do, but that's not the reality. The reality is that with with a little bit of work and discipline, that all of us can make the efforts to transform ourselves to be able to do these things. Now, we might all not be able to summit Mount Everest or maybe Kilimanjaro, but there are certainly other hills, other mountains, etc. that we can enjoy the views from and push our bodies to do so. So uh, I think it's important that we all realize that um, that we can get off the sofa right. and we can get out into the natural world and we can enjoy great advantages from that. Um, we've got some really interesting plans for next year, actually. Uh, we are planning uh, another trip to the Arctic okay. and then most po- possibly another, another mountain summit. Uh, so whenever this goes out, if people are interested, they can get in touch with us and um, we can see. I will definitely get in touch with you. Yeah. Marcus, we'll yeah. keep track of these dates. Yeah. I'd love to join you. I don't know whether how extreme I can start off with. Yeah. Or at least something, you know, manageable. Yeah. But, but there is something about, you know, just... Going away from this, you know, the, you know, right now in Bangalore, you're surrounded with, you know, this concrete towers all around us. Yeah. What effect does that, you know, just going out way out in the wilderness, you know, yeah. whether there's mountains or oceans or, you know, Arctic Circle. Yeah. What does it do to your brain and overall emotional health, you know, being in that environment? It's such an incredible experience and I remember this so vividly. So this trip that we did to the Arctic was probably one of the first times that I had been in a completely network-free zone in many years. Uh, even when we, I mean, now if you go to Everest, you get Wi-Fi. I mean, it's literally become like that. Even on Mount Kilimanjaro, there were specific places that they had uh, signal capability and we were able to communicate with people back home. And immediately you'll see people because they're on Instagram and WhatsApping, etc. Mm-hmm. But in this in this area of Lapland, which was at the interject intersection between Norway, Finland and Sweden, there was absolutely no phone network for those six, seven days. The only connectivity we had was with a satellite phone. And so we were able to send an SMS to our office to just let them know what our location was right. so that our family knew that we were all safe. So in those eight days that we were completely device-free, effectively, and network-free, the first day or two, you could see people having the withdrawal symptoms, mm. right? The edginess, the fact that they didn't know what to do with their hands, that they were almost reaching out for the phone, even though there was nothing that was coming in from it. But by day of three, four, five, people became much more relaxed. The conversations became much deeper. Our ability to appreciate the natural world just got that much more profound because you were able to sort of, uh, you could uh, you could almost see different colors and spectra and you just got much more connected with one another. And um, on day eight, I remember this now, we were just traversing through a valley. We had these two peaks on either side. 
we were traversing to this valley and we were coming down into these uh, paper trees, just down into the tree line. And we could see the hut where we were going to be staying. It was about a kilometer and a half from where we were. And there was a mobile mast right mm -hmm. next to it. And so we all knew we were going to get mobile reception. And all of us made a pact with one another. We're not going to go on our phones. We're not going to check our messages tonight. We've understood how important it is to be disconnected, etc. And then we all get there and we try for about 20, 30 minutes. And then one person opens it and then everyone else does as well. And we called our kids. But that night's sleep, everybody I asked the next morning, and, and we were a group of 16, everybody said that that was the worst night's sleep that they had on the entire trip, right? We don't know what it was. Mm. Was it the fact that we were suddenly in uh, electromagnetic radiation phase? Were we hyper up with anxiety and cortisol, etc.? But we know, and there's so much evidence and studies that have shown this, that our biology has now extended itself to a biosphere which communicates with technology. Mm -hmm. And it's a two-way relationship, yeah. right? As we are downloading our data, like the devices that you and I wear all the time, as we download our data to it, it is uploading yeah. information and stimuli to mm -hmm. us, and it affects us. Yeah. Decibelar noise affects our focus and concentration. Air quality affects our respiratory system and mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease. Quality of water, quality of soil, quality of food, all these things that we collectively need to get really concerned about because as we've experienced in the pandemic, the natural world mm -hmm. has a massive influence right. on us. And we need to start to make these changes. And technologies is one of those changes. Yeah. I think you're touching upon a very important topic. In fact, you know, I'm fascinated with this whole, you know, the how integral, you know, digital technology and screens have become part of our life. And a lot of us, you know, just walk around like zombies, you know, just yeah. can't spend even few minutes away from our phone. Yeah. So I've been doing this experiment with myself in the team here that, yeah. you know, we track how much time we're spending on screen All right. and kind of running a challenge whether, you know, yeah. people who can do less than an hour a day. But I think it goes much deeper into this whole idea of, you know, last 15, 20 years. What basically most people, including all of us, are addicted. Yeah. We, you know, just all the classical addiction symptoms. Yeah. I'm planning to do one whole episode on this. Just talk about, you know, uh, how deep the addiction runs across all generations, across all age groups. And yeah. it's getting worse by the day. And yeah. some some level, it's a very intelligently designed. A lot of yeah. really smart people yeah. working on capturing attention. Yeah. But let me not go on the trend right now. Yeah. I'll save it for the next episode. Yeah. Marcus, I want to go back to your early part of your career. Yeah. You got to do some really interesting stint in NASA. Yeah. Can you talk about what were, what were you doing there so, as a medical doctor? I think like so many of us... Um, I, all, I, I I wanted to grow up to be an astronaut. <laughs> all of us do. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I haven't given up on that, right? I, I've told my wife that <laughs> for my 50th, I would like to be in space. Um, but uh, so that was sort of the idea. I don't have the stomach for it. So I sort of came at it from the biology side right. rather than from the, the, the pilot side. Um, and what's fascinating about space, mm -hmm. apart from just the wonder of being in space, is that our bodies have evolved to live here on Earth at sea level, yeah. right? What that means is that as well as the atmospheric pressure of basically living at the bottom of an ocean of air and then having high concentrations of oxygen uh, and the gas mixtures that we see, which is critical for our respiration, we also are living on the surface of a planet which is basically pulling us down to its core at 9 meters, 9.8 yeah. meters per second. So there's a gravitational load. Every single cell in our body mm. has evolved to function and perform at that gravitational load. Your blood pressure 
it exists in a mechanism to counteract the gravitational load, the ability of the heart to contract, the way your lung stretches and expands, all the way down to something as basic and as wondrous as fertilization of, mm. of sperm and egg. All of this has evolved under the effects of gravity. Mm. Now, when you take the human being up into space, it's not a zero gravity environment. Uh, a lot of people misunderstand that. You see the astronauts floating. They're not floating because there's no gravity. They're floating because they're in free fall as the space station sort of makes its way around the trajectory of Earth. It's just continuously falling. And that's why they're in a zero degree uh, microgravity environment. So how could we understand the physiological adaptations that are happening to human beings mm -hmm. when you put them in that gravity-less yeah. environment? And this is really important to understand some of our basic physiology but if we are to realize some of Elon's plans about making us a multi-planetary species, 2051 million human beings on Mars, then this is going to be really important. Because in order to do a trip to Mars, let's assume successfully it's a round trip, it's going to be a two, two and a half year expedition yeah. where you've got nine months outbound, nine months back and about a year to 16 months on the surface. So the nine months outbound are going to be at a microgravity environment. Mars has a has a has a gravity load about a third of the Earth, uh, and then you're going to bring them back. And so musculoskeletal, so bone loss, muscle atrophy, cardiovascular deconditioning, uh, cognitive decline, um, the probability perhaps of a pregnancy type event. Yeah. So there are so many things that need to be understood. Mm -hmm. So. That's where I got involved. Right. I fell in love with this idea of studying biology in this unique environment and what can we then do to translate. So I, I added my cardiovascular sort of interest areas. Mm -hmm. So the work that I was doing principally was trying to understand on astronauts spending time on the space station, what is the degree of heart atrophy and remodeling that happens? How does blood pressure get affected? And that has implications to day-to-day -day living because there are many people around the world who, after a major health illness, having spent a lot of time in ICU mm -hmm. or being bed-bound, they now have to get up and move again. And being bed-bound or being in an ICU has an effect of limiting the gravitational load right. because you're not as active anymore. So these are important therapies that need to be uh, applied. If you take something as simple as osteopenia and osteoporosis, yeah. Every single medication that we prescribe today has come out of the work that has happened in the spaceflight program because an astronaut in space loses somewhere in the region of 1% of bone loss a month. Wow. A month, mm. right? When we talk about longevity, right. we lose 1% to 3% of muscle mass a decade. Right. These guys are losing it per month. Mm. So the strategies which are being employed on the International right. Space Station to keep astronauts healthy, to maintain bone mass, muscle strength, cardiovascular fitness, they all link back to the conversations you and I are having mm -hmm. on longevity. It's all deeply integrated. So what's yeah. coming out is this idea of studying human biology in extreme environment. Yeah. Whether those are extreme environment on Earth, you go to Everest, you go to Arctic Circle, or you go to space, you know, where you are experiencing microgravity. Yeah. And we are able to see what's happening in the in this extreme environment. How is our biology responding or maybe failing to respond? And it gives a window into what might, you know, yeah. work in yeah. the normal environment, right? Yeah. So a lot of, you know, what we know about is a cutting edge of human performance yeah. comes from all these environments. No, absolutely. And we have made the assumption that aging is a normal, natural process. Mm -hmm. 
But it doesn't need to be that case, right? Aging is a decline of yeah. cellular activity, structurally, metabolically, in, in signaling, etc. And there are many examples around the world of centarians and supercentarians, so people living to 100 or 110, who have incredible physiologies and anatomies. And so that's a window into the possibility. Right. So how, what are the interventions that we should be doing at ages 30, 40, 50, 60 mm -hmm. in order to influence our trajectory to be healthy at 80, 90, 100, 100 We shall definitely talk about it in a lot more detail. But this even idea of, you know, longevity, lifespan, health span, it wasn't part of everyday discourse, let's say 20 years ago. No. But today, everyone's talking about it, right? What do you think has changed in the last 10, 15 years? How has come from, you know, very esoteric subject? Yeah. There may be some, you know, uh, crazy people will talk about that I want to live yeah. till 100 or 125. Yeah. Today, you have this biohacking conferences around the world. There are, you know, these longevity centers coming up yeah. in different parts of the world. What has triggered this? And how has this conversation on lifespan, healthspan, like what has made it so mainstream? Yeah. I think let's look at the last hundred years, right? The uh, the great wars of the 20th century uh, created uh, inventions which transformed how healthcare and medicine was practiced. Antibiotics being a big one, early surgical procedures uh, because of trauma being another one, etc. And we saw medicine and healthcare transition from um, uh, towards being a curative model yeah. where we can cure an acute infection, mm -hmm. we can cure a, a disease pathology by surgery, etc. We then got into sort of the 60s and 70s and 80s where we began to understand this idea of non-communicable diseases as the advent or introduction, let's say, of sugar into diets yeah. and milk and proteins and other things happened to become more available. Calories became much more available. And that's when the model started to shift towards a preventive mindset. Mm -hmm. We started to see a lot of that in 80s, 90s, right. and, and early 2000s. Now what we're really talking about is almost like medicine 3.0, which is about optimization, yeah. about us being our best versions of ourselves. I think affordability has had a big role to play. Mm -hmm. I think like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are slowly, increasingly as a society, moving higher and higher above towards that pyramid. Uh, so I think these are important factors. I think the other big piece in all of this is our understanding of the biology. Mm -hmm. The fact that the Human Genome Project was able to, for the first time, codify what it is to be a, a human being. Right. The fact that we've got imaging diagnostics that can really go cellular, subcellular, and understanding the different organs and systems of the body and giving us windows mm -hmm. into how those cells are different. And then the, the sort of therapeutics yeah. that have started to come, which are more biological, much more personalized, and frankly can be done in your garage and personalized to the individual. So I think we've had this intersection of our understanding fueled by technology, exponential technologies, digitization, miniaturization, um, etc. So I think these are sort of the trends. But the worrying trend in all of this for me is that this idea of lifespan, yeah. right? And maybe we'll spend two minutes talking right. about lifespan yes, versus lifespan, right? Yeah. So lifespan, as, as as we should understand it, is is the number of years that we live, right? Take India, independence in 1947, the life expectancy was about 42 or 43 years old. Today, in the year 2023, we're at 69 for men, and or 67 for men and 69 for women, something like this. So in the last 75 years, we've added 25 to 30 years to 20 to 25 years to our lifespan. In other parts of the world, in Japan, it's 85, 88 plus in the US, etc. So we've grown to think that 
the number of years we live is naturally going to extend more and more along the x-axis. However, that's not always the case. In this year, for the first time, we have seen a reversal in that number of years. That can be a pandemic effect, yeah. most likely because of COVID. But there's something else which is happening under the surface. We are seeing the average age of onset of first chronic disease is happening at a younger and younger age. I have patients who are in their early 20s yeah. who come with fatty liver disease, mm. diabetes. I've seen scans of 12, 14-year-old boys right. who've got grade 2, grade 3 fatty livers, right? And why are these things becoming more prevalent? Our lifestyles have changed. We live in a calorie excess world. The types of calorie we consume are high fructose corn syrup, low, uh, um, uh, high glycemic index carbohydrate, an abundance of sugars available, trans fats, things which are really dangerous to the body. So we have a calorie excess. We have an environment, a physical environment, which is deteriorating. And then frankly, we're all stressed. Everyone's cortisol levels, because of technology, because of our lifestyle, because of the environment, is in this hyper alert where our amygdala is constantly in this stress, yeah. fight and flight state. And so insulin uh, resistances are growing, leading to all of the different lifestyle disorders that we see. So it's not just therefore about lifespan. It's this concept of health span, right. which is how healthy is my life, right. right? I could be 60, but I could be 60 summiting Mount Everest, or I could be 60 with four chronic diseases, sedentary, living life in front of a television and not much sort of joy, the viva or the vitality, right? So that's what we're trying to unlock is this yeah. idea of promoting health span, not just being fixated on whether you live to 120, that's okay. Right. But if you are going to have 80, 90 years, right. how can it be as vital, as energetic, mm -hmm. as optimal? As so let's drill on one of the aspects. I think, you know, we've got a pretty broad range. And on one hand, I mean, you were right, you know, why lifespans are increasing. Yeah. But the onset of this lifestyle disease happening earlier and earlier, almost implying reduction in health span, you know. Yes. In the past, I might have 30, 14 good years. Yeah. Where I'm disease free, yeah. I'm able to do what I want to do. Yeah. Today, because of you know, all the lifestyle changes, you know, a lot of people are on one hand suffering from perhaps a reduced life health span. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you look at the, all the longevity literature, what people are talking about is how can we dramatically increase health span? And that's almost you know counter or you know the um, point of view that yeah. you know let's assume that lifespan will continue to increase for some time. Yeah. Perhaps you know already we have some parts of the world in high eighties. Yes. Perhaps we'll cross nineties. Yeah. But even when you know, those kind of high lifespan. We've seen in India, you know, people will retire after the age of 60. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, the physical, uh, mental decline start very quickly after that. But this idea that's getting hold now that by adopting right lifestyle, right therapeutic interventions, yeah. you can actually aim for much longer health span. Yeah. You know, what I translate into that, you know, let's say most people, core of their career is from the age of 30 to 60. Yeah. That's one career. Yeah. But if you are able to manage your health span for another 30 years, which is definitely, you know, possible today, or science tells us there's nothing that comes in the way, yeah. that gives you literally extra life yeah. that all of us can live and yeah. perhaps do best, you know, work of our life yeah. in that age of 60 to 90. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, imagine the benefit to society because with age comes wisdom, Yeah. right? With With youth comes energy, but with age comes wisdom. And if we're able to give a second and third lease of life yeah. to people above the age of 60, not just living longer and dying slowly as they are today, right. but truly living life as healthy as, as nature perhaps intended it to be the case, 
then what could be the new technologies? What could be the degree of mentorship? What could be the knowledge which gets passed down? What could be the innovations? I think our society could really transform itself. I think I believe, you know, we are on the cusp of this revolution. I know, as I think you mentioned, you know, some of the stuff is still probably in the lab. Maybe early uh, clinical trials are promising. We're definitely understanding more and more about the cellular mechanism of aging. Yeah. Uh, but transferring them to things that you know, all of us can practice, yeah. probably work in progress. Some ways, you know, maybe we can consider, we'll talk about that. Some yeah. maybe hopefully in five or 10 years from now, we'll have even better therapies. But let's, you know, now break this down into layers. What are the fundamentals which are, you know, no regret move. Yeah. All of us can make if, you know, if I intend to live long, I definitely do. Yeah. And I also want to be active, you know, maintain my full cognitive abilities as long as I live. Yeah. So for that, what are the fundamentals yeah. that everyone must, you know, get right and which is, you know, we don't need yeah. more science to figure that out. Yeah. I think that's uh, something that you and I share and I recently read your book, Hacking Health. And I think it's this idea of going back to the simple things yeah. in life, right? Uh, we should and we can go down the conversations around advanced therapeutics, molecular machinery, uh, etc. But if we can get the basics right, yeah. then we've gone 80, 90% yeah. of the way there. And 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 trying to recollect from your book, um, uh, in, in the framework model that I talk about, yeah. I too have these five pillars, right? right? Yeah. So we talk about sleep. Right. And I know that was the beginning of yours Absolutely. as well. The importance of good sleep. Yeah. Sleep is your body's time where it rests and repairs itself, yeah. but it also grows itself as well, right? Physical mental, cognitively as well. So good sleep is really critical and we always start with that pillar. The second is how you fuel the body. Mm-hmm. And I like to use the word fuel and not diet right. because diet is restrictive, it's mm-hmm. claustrophobic, it's an yeah. onerous chore that someone does episodically. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine your body to be a machine, yeah. then like every other machine, you have to put the right fuel in the right. machine, right? And you can enjoy that fuel and you can have lots of that fuel provided it's the right type of mm-hmm. fuel. So in fuel, we look at the macronutrients, we look at the micronutrients and the supplementation, which is so important for people. Uh, we look at the healthy uh, aspects of the microbiome, the gut, the three trillion organisms that uh, live inside of us, which make us who we are in many ways. We look at the, the role of caffeine and water and hydration, etc. So fuel is another important pillar. The third pillar is movement. And again, I don't like the word exercise. Yeah. Exercise involves all this idea of being sweaty in the gym and have to do something. But your bodies were made to move and it moves in so many different ways. And there are five forms. There's the aerobic form, like climbing a mountain or running or jogging or cycling. There's the anaerobic form, which is where people who are playing, let's say, a racket sport or high-intensity training, Tabata. There is, uh, the third is then resistance training. Muscles is a critical component of longevity, yeah. right? When I was at, I just graduated as a medic. Um, my first, my second job actually was in geriatric medicine. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, this would have been 2007, 2008 when I was on the wards, uh, I was given a, a really scary statistic by my consultant. And he said, Marcus, 70% of over 70s who we will see in this hospital who have presented with a fractured hip femur that we call it, the fractured neck of yeah. femur, will not be alive in 12 months. 70% of over 70s, right? That's a massive number. Now, why does this happen? The fall can happen for a variety of reasons, but the break happens because they've lost core strength, Mm -hmm. muscle protection around it, the quality of the bones, etc. So for everyone over the age of 30, I always remind them, in the same way as you have a saving plan, 
where you're investing in your financial health mm-hmm. for the long run, you have to go to the gym at least once a week for me. Right. Because that's your health plan. That's the muscle investment yeah. that you're making. So the power of building muscle is really important. The fourth is flexibility mm-hmm. and the fifth is balance. So these are sort of the five forms of movement, which is so important for people. The fourth pillar is this concept of the environment that mm-hmm. we've been talking about. And the environment for me has three components, the people, the places, and the technologies, yeah. because they influence us in mm-hmm. the same way as we influence it. And the last, uh, which you spoke about also in your book, is the mental, emotional health, this idea of cognition, focus, concentration. But I like to take it further, apart from just stress and, and, uh, and anxiety and mood, Let's look at gratitude. Let's look at the role of purpose in life, right? right? Let's look at the 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 intangibility of joy, yeah. empathy, gratitude, all these right. things. So that's sort of my mental model for the simple basics of a good, healthy living. No, incredible. I'm glad you're talking about it. And generally, you know, when people who are interested in healthy lifestyle, yeah. most of attention goes to diet and fitness. Mm. And you are absolutely right. You know, fitness for a lot of people may mean... Yeah running outdoors or go to gym but I think incorporating movement yeah. in various forms yeah. almost throughout the day yeah. is as you rightly said our bodies evolved to do that yeah. but I think those two people are generally familiar with but other, I think sleep I still think you know does not get enough attention you know I yeah. think everything I've read about health you know fitness in the last 10-15 years yeah. it boils down to single biggest factor is sleep yeah. you know yeah. if you don't have the sleep factor sorted yeah. every Layering other things is, you know, not going to do that much, right? Yeah. Similarly, the aspect of emotional health, especially in our country, you know, yeah. is almost a continues to be a near taboo subject. You know, I had a episode with Dr. Shambhat recently, you know, right. talked about mental health yeah. in a lot of detail. But yeah. mental health also is two aspects. One is when you're dealing with anxiety, stress, etc. Mm. But the preventive aspect of it, you mm. know, we all like we are managing our body. We need yeah. to manage our mind because yeah. that will also have big repercussion on quality of life, quality of relationships, you know, yeah. what you're thinking every day and also transcend to yeah. your work also. Like if I'm in a good mood, yeah. feeling good about myself, energy, yeah. you know, I'll be able to bring my best self yeah. to work every day and it adds up over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, you know, for us, you yeah, yeah, sure. So Mukesh, you've built a career where you've created exponential impact, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people watching this will respect all the incredible stuff that you've done. But you've reached this stage, but you've said for the last 15 years, you've been interested in yeah. it. So, how have you incorporated this into your lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure we're going to have a lot of viewers who okay. are early stage entrepreneurs, corporate executives who are thinking these guys are talking about slow living or right. something about <laughs> detaching from the outside world. But actually the message right. is yeah. is fully intertwined. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's been a very integral part of my you know entire career and two different you know ways. Yeah. One is somehow, you know, just like yourself, I was very fortunate to be very active, you know. Yeah. I grew up playing a lot of sports. You know, yeah. I almost identified myself with sports. Yeah. In a different life, I would have liked to be a you know, professional athlete. It right. was not to be. So, so which I, sport would you have played? India, everyone has to play cricket. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. it's, right. There's no choice. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I've also played golf very seriously. I've mm. played tennis a little bit, badminton, and you name it, like a lot of different sports, right? right. Uh, but, in my, you know, by the time I was hitting 30, yeah. I could see that there was changes happening in my body, which I didn't like. Yeah. And that's when I got uh, intrigued about learning about uh, health and fitness. Yeah. And got convinced, you know, a couple of years into that exploration. Yeah. That is a super important, probably more important than anything I'll ever do. Yeah. 
and then you know, as my entrepreneurial career started obviously there were a lot of demands to my time yeah and i've been kind of on this quest of continuous you know people call this uh, lifestyle design yeah like how do i you know optimize for take care of you know health family emotional health interest yeah. and have very high product you know high caliber 8 to 10 11 hours in a day yeah where i'm super focused yeah so i think that has been my go to playbook for entire 15 years obviously there have been exception there have been yeah. stressful days and so on and there have yeah. been challenges yeah. sometimes i also fall off the bandwagon yeah. but i keep coming back to it yeah and i have you know no qualms in saying that at least whatever has happened to my career it's because of you know this incredible you know commitment to health yeah. and fitness throughout this yeah. and last 4 or 5 years i've added you know meditation yeah. to my overall uh daily protocol yeah sleep i don't know for some reason almost never compromise right very rarely you know i would sleep less than 8 hours right which is you know seems pretty bizarre yeah and i thought you know it was an oddity for me because i just wasn't able to function on less sleep right uh and now i'm like feel so good the last 5 7 years so much you know yeah uh research has come out in fact i think your you know previous organization thrive a uh, global also yeah. i think you know ariana talks so much about sleep, sleep right in yeah. her book i yeah. forgot the name the sleep book, revolution sleep revolution right yeah. so she has you know done yeah. her bit in yeah. promoting the idea yeah. so i think yeah you know as an entrepreneur understand you know you have lot of demands in your time yeah. but i feel the more you take care of fundamentals yeah. the quality of other hours goes up significantly yeah. and that's where i feel you know those 10 hours in a day the output of that could be 2x 5x 10x i believe in 100x right that's why you know sure. well idea of no limits right? yeah. so yeah, yeah. but i'm fortunate that i have been able to incorporate you know the genuine commitment to healthy lifestyle yeah. and yeah. that has i think immensely helped my career yeah and it's 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 our jobs to raise awareness and hopefully inspire other people right. that they should be doing the same yeah absolutely and i hope you know people watching this yeah. uh, and generally i see like the health awareness is increasing yeah also what's lacking is you know access to right protocols mm. starting is very difficult you know it's just you know if you have been sedentary mm. or used to particular diet mm. so i think we need better intervention on that and it's right. very easy to say yeah <laughs> these are right things to do but yeah. you know making those small changes yeah. you know hence i want to spend a lot of time in this you know whole podcast series on talking about things like habit you know yeah. how do you bring our habit change yeah. it's not easy i mean for me also it's not easy i still struggle yeah. you know i'm sure yeah. you struggle as absolutely. well right you know despite doing absolutely. all these extreme yes. sports right so sure. we need to have much more in depth conversation about that so then you start one step at a time mm. Uh, but Marcus, you know, coming back to this idea of longevity, yeah. um, so there is this five fundamental pillars. Yeah. Pillars we talked about. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. With you know, without that, there is no more conversation. Yeah. But beyond that, now our understanding of longevity is a mm. lot better. Mm. Uh, so, what are the, you know? Let, let's talk about some of those aspects. You know, what yeah. is the starting with? Uh, what is even aging? You know, how do we know we are aging? You know, mm. there is you know this whole I think about fifteen years ago. this study was published you talk about nine hallmarks of aging right yeah so can you break it down for us you know your understanding of today what's the best definition of aging you know how do we know when I mean, there is obviously chronological age yeah. we can count the years but yeah. that's not the full story absolutely i think it's important for us to appreciate the difference between chronological age and biological age chronological age basically being how many times how many birthdays have you celebrated and biological age which is what is the true age of your yeah. actual cells and there are there are ways to measure that yeah. there are blood based techniques uh, the most popular which are called the hobart clocks after professor hobart who sort of conceptualized this idea is taking a saliva sample looking at different methylations which is ch3 methane uh, methyl groups attached to different parts of the genome and therefore creating a calculation in terms of how old you are and you can do it at home and you can track yourself to see whether your interventions are making you younger and, right. and healthier through the process 
the paper you were describing really talks about this idea of the nine hallmarks, right? And now you're going to put me on the spot to remember all nine, but um, I'm hopeful that uh, whoever watching this can also look online. But this idea was that it's not just one process. Right? We've we've grown up and frankly, even in med school, we came to this uh, idea that aging is a natural consequence of living longer. Yeah. And when you look around the room, you could tell who's sort of 60 and 70 and who's sort of 20 and 30 because there were phenotypical, there were mm -hmm. physical manifestations of aging. Yeah. The aesthetic changes that we don't like, which is the, the white hair, uh, etc. But you could see that the muscles were losing its mass and strength. You could see that people were more prone to developing uh, or putting on more weight around their central circumference. And then there were metabolic changes that were going through. So now as we understand aging, these nine hallmarks, uh, there is this idea of cell senescence, mm -hmm. which is that some cells no longer have the same functionality and vigor as what they used to have. And therefore, they're zombie cells, mm -hmm. right? Another key aspect is, uh, is telomeric changes, which is these little caps that exist on the end of our genes are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And that could be a, a, a causality of aging. The third and my favorite, personally, is mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And it's even sort of the last chapter of my book on sort of mitochondria, the, the future of yeah. health. And uh, I'll spend a moment on mitochondria, yeah. right? Uh, mitochondria, people might remember from their biology textbook days, it, uh, it uh, is the formation of this organelle which happened about 2 billion years ago. So somewhere in one of the ma mass oceans of the Earth, two single-cell organisms came together but unlike all the other interactions, the bigger one did not eat the smaller one. In this interaction, what happened, the smaller one survived because it started to create something of interest to the bigger one. And they created this symbiotic relationship where the bigger one said, I'll protect you in exchange. You give me things that I need. Right. So the smaller one said, I'll give you energy. And the bigger one said, OK, I'll be your cell wall and your surrounding. And that was sort of the, the conjunction of the first multicellular organism. So mitochondria exist in every single cell except the red blood cell. Uh, the plant kingdom have their own version called chloroplast, which creates energy. And mitochondria produces ATP, which is the energy currency of our cells. Now, what's fascinating about the mitochondria is that imagine you're a beta cell of the pancreas, right? So you're sitting there in the pancreas and your role as the beta cell is to do one thing, which is to secrete insulin. Yeah. Now, in order for you to do your activity, you need energy. Yeah. Now, if the mitochondria are not producing enough energy for you to meet your needs, like all of us in our day-to-day -day lives, we'll become sluggish, we'll become lethargic, and we'll become less productive. And this is the beginning of insulin secretion challenges within the pancreas. Imagine you're a cardiac myocyte. So you're sitting in the heart and your job is just to contractile pump yeah. and therefore push blood. If the mitochondria is not giving you enough energy, the heart suddenly isn't able to do its job. Right. So we're beginning to see mitochondrial deficiencies or, or functional, uh, functional deficiencies across almost every single major organ system and leading to almost every known chronic disease. Mm -hmm. From neurodegenerative conditions to metabolic conditions to cardiovascular diseases and to cancers as well, mitochondrial dysfunction, and that's why it's my favorite, mm -hmm. is one of the critical hallmarks exactly. of, uh, of why this aging process happens. You then have challenges with protein synthesis mm -hmm. and protein turnover. So our cells are not, as our biology textbook shows, this sort of jelly-like object with this fluid inside. It is a 
scaffold of proteins which hold and give shape to yeah. the entire structure. And like any scaffold in your building, in your apartment block, after a period of time, it'll begin to wear and tear, right. it'll begin to degrade, and then the functionality of that cell can't be what it used to be. So as we get older, for some reasons, the protein begins to denature itself mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, they, and they break down. And like that, there are right. other forms of, sure. of thing. So aging is a subcellular process. Mm -hmm. And now as we begin to understand it, um, the medical community is able to develop therapeutics to right. try and target each and every, or interventions to try and target each and every one of these to try and overcome the aging right. decline. And what are... Uh are these tests like say I want to measure my um, biological age as opposed to chronological age? Are there tests available in India now? Um, the salivary tests I have not seen in India actually. Okay. So when when I do the testing for the folks that I work with, uh, there, there are two labs. There's one lab in San Diego and there's another lab in in the United Kingdom that we use. Um, it's very simple. It's a saliva spit yeah. at home. Uh, we send it across to the lab and a few weeks later the results come. So we should do something about it, Marcus. I think separately we'll talk about it. Sure. We should have access to yeah. all this cutting edge tests, you know, right here in India. Yeah. Take some time when yeah. we'll get to it. Yeah. But uh, the you know, the when you do these tests in US, etc., what kind of delta you see between yeah. the both on the positive side and negative side? Yeah. I think the big thing is to appreciate that with any early technology, it's not an exact science. Mm -hmm. Right. Even the way that it's being measured, there is a lot of criticism and healthy debate yeah. in the scientific community. But my philosophy has always been, and we learned this in med school, the trend is my trend, friend. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm using the same platform yeah. over a period of time, even if there's an error rate of 25%, right. provided that same error rate applies all the time longitudinally, then at least I'm able to infer a difference. Yeah. Right. So that's why I like some of these tools. The second thing that I like these tools is that we as a species like a goal, right? right? We like to be working towards yeah. a particular outcome. Right. And I think particularly here in our part of the world, we like numbers. Right. Yeah? So if I can show an individual, look, your biological age is 34, but actually when I measure your, sorry, your, your right. chronological age is 34, but when I measure your biology, you're 48 years old, right. right? You're 16 years older than you should be, 14 years older than you should be. Now, let's run these interventions. Right. Let's fix those five pillars. Let's maybe look at some of the other things we'll talk about, the therapeutics, and then repeat that test in six yeah. months and 12 months. And suddenly they see a number right. come down, the dopamine surges, right. the behavior loop closes, right. they feel accomplished, and they're more likely to commit to that. Right. So your point is, you know, the specific number may not be in that significant. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, ultimately what these tests are doing they're able to measure some signs of aging at the cellular level yeah. and quantify that into a number that yeah. this particular body function is behaving as if you are 10 year older yeah. or 10 year younger and yeah. that trend line over a period of time can yeah. be fully indicative. And you're yeah. right also that it's much easier to make you know changes. You know, For example, if I'm measuring you know, body fat percentages, having a target to work towards is just a great motivation. You also see yeah. tangible progress, otherwise you feel lost. Uh, um, so okay, there is, you know, beyond, you know, biological testing, you know, can you run through like if let's say, you know, I would come to you, Marcus, and say like, Marcus, I want to see what's happening yeah. in my body. Am I, you know, uh, is my rate of aging yeah. is manageable? Are there signs I should worry about? What are the, some of the fundamental tests yeah. 
you recommend everyone should you know yeah. go through i like to look at it as layers yeah. and um i'm a simple person so i like to start with simple right. things right so the first thing we that i like to look at is simple functional tests yeah. right and you don't need fancy gym equipment you can do all of these things at home something as simple as a hand grip strength right and there's a little device that they have in most gym yeah. has been shown to have a very strong correlation towards an individual's biological yeah. age right or the ability how many seconds can you hang on a monkey bar yeah how many seconds can you stand on one leg how many pushups can you do in a minute right these sound like things that we would have done in school but actually when you submit and look at the trend yeah. they are very powerful indicators right. to what your biological age is so i like to start with functional tests right very simple measurements across different body groups the second thing i like to do is blood testing yeah now i divide these into two there are the the common blood tests that people probably hopefully do once a year which is sort of your lipid panel your ldl hdl mm-hmm. trigs cholesterol uh maybe your a1c for diabetes etc and then there are some specific tests which the more recent science has been shown to be giving us a greater degree of insight into the longevity or right. the health span of an individual so for example anyone who's doing a lipid profile should hopefully also add what we call an lp little a mm-hmm. so lipoprotein small a because that's a very strong marker in terms of your long term cholesterol and and lipid synthesis levels and the second is apob ap and then a big b yeah. so these are some of the more nuanced tests mm-hmm. that we can add to the simple parameters same thing because we're living in the diabetic capital of the world 100 million people now suffering from prediabetes uh, in india alone so if you're annually doing an a1c or what we used to call the hba1c in the old days now i recommend people also do a fasting insulin blood mm-hmm. test a uric acid blood test as well and then of course the random sugar and why fasting insulin diabetes is not a disease of glucose yeah. this is something which unfortunately even us in the medical profession have got wrong for many many decades diabetes is a disease of insulin it is the resistance to insulin or the non secretion of insulin by the pancreas which is causing the majority of problems mm-hmm. as your body becomes accustomed to too much carbohydrate it secretes insulin to try and bring that level down and then insulin is basically like growth hormone it causes a hypertrophy the vessel lining of your arteries and veins become bigger leading to hypertension it leads to downstream consequences of cancer because of the way glucose metabolism occurs etc 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 so please check your insulin levels whenever you're checking your a1c so we've got the whole blood right. piece as yeah. the second piece the third piece i like to do is some imaging and the common imaging that i like to do is a dexa scan mm-hmm. which is basically looking at your body composition analysis yeah you can either go to the clinic or now in most gyms yeah. you have a very simple device that you can right. stand on and provided you're using the same device over a period of time mm-hmm. the error rate doesn't matter right. as we spoke about it gives me an understanding of body fat it also gives me an understanding of muscle mass mm-hmm. which is really important as yeah. we get older so that's one imaging the other imaging i like to do is ultrasounds yeah particularly here in india because somewhere between 20 to 30% of the population have grade 1 fatty liver disease mm-hmm. which again is a problem because of the food that we eat 20 to 30% of the population has has fatty liver disease mm-hmm. it is the most prevalent condition that i see in the executives that i work with across the matter i understand fatty liver is one is definitely you know con- regular consumption of alcohol is one cause mm. but what are the other pathways to and so it used to be called 
non-alcoholic fatty mm, liver disease. This was to differentiate it oh. from alcoholics who develop fatty liver disease. Uh, so the non-alcoholic fat, and the name is now undergoing mm. some change mm. as well. So the, we prefer to call it metabolically right. associated fatty liver disease because it's a disease of metabolism, which is principally happening through three things. Yeah. The high, uh, uh, the high availability of fructose and simple sugars. Right. The the high sedentary or the low activity in a person's life, and the high amount of stress and right. and lack of sleep. This is the liver, is the place unfortunately where a lot of this transformation happens from of different right. molecules. Right. It's a very metabolically active place, and the reason why it's so dangerous is when your body starts to put on fat. The first place it puts is subcutaneous under the mm -hmm. skin. Aesthetically, we hate it, yeah. but actually, from a longevity perspective, right. having a body fat of about twelve to fourteen percent yeah. protects you in the long run. After the body has exhausted subcutaneous compartment, yeah. it goes to the viscera. It will yeah. start putting it in the intestine, in the heart, around the uh, major organ systems in the abdomen, and the last place it goes is the liver. And so, if you've got fat in the liver, that means you're in a pretty dire state. Right. It's gone everywhere else. It's affecting your metabolism. Mm -hmm your liver enzymes are going to be off, etc. So I like to do the ultrasound because people like data. Yeah. It's a number that I can show them or it's an image that I can show them and they suddenly wake up to this idea, my God, my metabolism needs to be adjusted. Marcus, I would love to know your, you know, your suggestion for how should one think about regular health testing? Yeah. See, and, and there I understand you know, there are extremes. On one hand, there are people who probably haven't even gotten tested once in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, I mean, I think I'm in the other extreme, you know, I have this kind of uh, testing routine where there are probably over 200 markers. I get them tested every six months. I have a trend line going back to last 10 years. Amazing. At some point, I hope an AI will be able to ingest all the data and tell yeah. me yeah. something about it. But yeah, it's cumbersome, you know, to draw blood, it's yeah. expensive and so on. Yeah. Someone, you know, and I understand, you know, you can only give generic guidelines because people ultimately probably has to consult their yeah. physician to figure it. But what are some starting thoughts for someone who is really not very active in testing? Yeah. How should think about and design something that may work for them? I think we used to live in a framework where we would suggest doing it once a year. Yeah. And typically it was sort of the age of 40 that you started. Right. But because of sick care or chronic disease happening much earlier, yeah. I recommend everyone over the age of 30 start to do these things, right. if not sooner, because we're just seeing so much yeah. more of it at a younger age. Right. I think if we can focus on the simple things first and just yeah. getting them used to the idea of doing a blood test, doing some of this imaging functional testing, right. etc. They build this habit and this mm -hmm. behavior of of understanding that, okay, I've got to, like you do your car, right? You service your car every year. you just got to service right. the other machine, your yeah. body as well. And then slowly build right. up from that perspective. Yeah. So just to understand this, you know, idea of testing more. So there yeah. is, you know, simple things you're talking about. Yeah. Beyond that, um, are there more advanced tests one can think about? Like if let's say I'm seriously interested in longevity. Yeah. I really want to live long. I yeah. want to maintain my health span yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah. How do I develop a comprehensive understanding of what's going on with my body? Yeah. There are some um, newer tests which are being made available that people are, 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 are having done, especially in these sort of new longevity centers which are popping up mm -hmm. in various parts of the world. There's one big space around what's called metabolomic testing. Yeah which is where they're looking at metabolites. Mm -hmm. So the difference between a normal blood test and a metabolic, uh, metabolomic blood test is a normal blood test, let's say looking at blood sugar or insulin, these are big molecules mm -hmm. that are present in the bloodstream. But our cells are constantly firing off these smaller molecules, little signals mm -hmm. 
about the distress state they're in, about their choice of fuel, about sort of the communication molecules that they're sending to one another. And that's where metabolomics has a, a role to play. So metabolomics is another type of testing yeah. uh, which is often done. And we can look at different sort of cell lines and systems from that perspective. Uh, the other area of interest is more and more places are now making available mitochondrial function tests. Uh, again, it's very early right. in terms of where they are in their diagnostic capabilities. But it's this understanding that we could potentially measure the ability of a mitochondria, the inflammation, the stress signals, the fueling pathways, etc., to understand how healthy they are. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the, the second uh, aspect. Uh, the third is there are, and I was reading in the paper in online this morning, is sort of whole body MRIs. Mm -hmm. So imaging which covers you literally right. from head to toe. Yeah. Uh, this is where AI has to come yeah. and be a very active component because no technician, no radiologist will be able to sequentially look at every right. single plane uh, and pick up on the smallest deviations which are naturally variations between different people. So sort of MRIs um, is, is another big uh, imaging uh, pathway. Um, and then there are, I mean, there, there are plenty of others. But Maybe you can touch upon also you yeah. know, the proliferation of uh, uh, gut microbiome tests. Ah, right, absolutely. So this is an interesting field of study which has become more and more prevalent over the last, I would say, five to ten years. Uh, the microbiome is this cluster of organisms that sit inside of our gut. Mm -hmm. They weigh something like three to four kilos in every single one of us. About one to three trillion mm -hmm. organisms are there. And um, it's a combination of bacteria, virus, fungi, and other organisms. And their role is to break down the fuel that we provide mm -hmm. and then secrete or emit chemicals and biological molecules which impact our health, right from neurodegenerative disorders through to cardiovascular and metabolic diseases as well. So measuring the uh, diversity of the microorganisms in our gut has become much more uh, exciting. Um, measuring the diversity, which are good, which are bad, how much of good, how much of bad uh, are there. These are tests that can be done either as a stool sample or in some instances even as a saliva. So you can look at top and tail uh, from that perspective. But where the next step needs to go in this is that let's even assume, which we don't even know today, let's assume that we are able to tell an individual whether their microorganisms are good versus bad and what the what the probability what the sorry the diversity is how can we influence it right. so we know there are some simple things like having homemade yogurt or uh, pickled foods uh, or other types of simple probiotic supplementations yeah. and fiber but i think where science really wants to go is that if we have an individual suffering from let's say irritable bowel syndrome and we can see that, okay, they've got, let's say, a high, uh, a high prevalence of microorganisms A, B, and C. Can we specifically give them an intervention mm -hmm. to shift that to right. D, E, and F, right? Yeah. So I think that's a, a area of science which will take shape over the next uh, 10 years or so. Right. But microbiome testing is certainly something which is very available. I think the other area which links to it is methylation mm -hmm. because a lot of us will understand a genetic test yeah. because we've read about so the human genome project but the genetic test gives you the codification yeah. your ATGC yeah. framework the expression of those genes is what changes in all of us right. and it's constantly moving up and down it can move because of environmental stresses it can move because of behavioral changes we make food that we consume mm -hmm. 
uh, diseases that we may have, etc. So measuring the expression of genes is really important. And so now there are tests to measure epigenetics or the methylation right. of particular parts of the genome and whether you're therefore more at risk for a right. particular condition or the other. Yeah. Where are we in India today, uh, Marcus, in, if, if I have to put together all these tests, hmm. how easy or difficult it is for someone to get access to right advice, right sort of high quality tests because yeah. these are also very sensitive markers and if your equipment or yeah. testing protocols are not good, you know, yeah. it can give a false picture and then ultimately interpreting and so what of that? Yeah. So what should I change yeah. so that I am a bit more, like how does one think about in approaching this? I think India is at level zero or one on yeah. that on that journey, but that's an opportunity right. for us. And I think we must also appreciate that as a country, yeah. we've had to solve other problems first. And now we're reaching that stage right. where we can be allowed to solve right. this problem as well. So I think for us, the opportunity in the longevity space is to bring the right technologies, right. culturally sensitive yeah. to the Indians right. on a uh, on a data set which is Indian because another big unfortunate consequence of the way scientific literature is published mm -hmm. is that most of these trials are on white uh, middle-aged mm -hmm. men, right? And translating that science to South Asians, physiology and biology needs to be done. I think given that, you know, we have a you know, very large population, 1.4 billion people. Yeah. And yes, I agree, you know, we have a lot of basic problems which yeah. are yet to be completely solved. Yeah. Access to, you know, quality healthcare is obviously not available. Mm. And there is tons and tons of work needs to happen in that area. Yeah. Having said that, I think just like, you know, many areas, you know, countries now looking at the cutting edge of technology, whereas nuclear energy or building rockets, or building quantum computers. I think yeah. there's no reason why India should also not play Absolutely. at the cutting edge of longevity as well. Yeah. So I think we need to also, and it does not cost that much. It yeah. just requires the right mindset. I really hope to, you know, Amarka seriously work on this area. I would love to collaborate with you and maybe yeah. use this podcast as an opportunity to just request anyone who has deep interest yeah. in the you know science of longevity yeah. and bringing some of the solutions to India. Yeah. I think please reach out. I yeah. think we'd love to collaborate. But yeah. I think India deserves to have its own yeah. absolutely world-class state-of-the-art longevity center where yeah. all these tests are readily available. Yeah. And this can be also used as a research center. You know, absolutely. it's not necessarily that to make, you know, few wealthy people reach very long. Yeah. But we learned like just like your example of, you know, going to all these extreme environments yeah. and measuring human biology, we can yeah. learn so much more. Absolutely. And a lot of that can translate into policy changes, you know, availability of certain nutrients to everyone, certain tests, screening, yeah. etc. Right. So I think yeah. it's definitely worth investing into. For sure. I think our responsibility is the democratization of this knowledge, right? right? Where I love this concept of, of the research facility because that will allow us to scale it to make it impactful yeah. for the rest of the our country. I really hope, you know, I yeah. get to both work on this and yep. collaborate with you. Absolutely. But let's yeah. continue this. So testing is one part. Yeah. But uh, now that I know a lot more about my biology, yeah. what are the ways I can act on beyond the, you know, five fundamentals you talked about, you know, mm. um, there's so much attention you know, yeah. is given to the whole range of supplements. Yeah. And it's mind-boggling. You know, there are, mm -hmm. I think, thousands of supplements out there. Yeah. Every single molecule is you know, available as a supplement. Yeah. How should one start their journey of learning about supplements, yeah. maybe some experimentations, yeah. and augmenting their nutrition, which is obviously fundamental. You, know? yeah. you can't replace your nutrition, but yeah. you can definitely supplement as the name implies. No, absolutely. So, absolutely. I was at a dinner last night with some some entrepreneurs and this is precisely the conversation that they were asking me because if you go to Google, yeah. you've got, as you said, hundreds of thousands of these things yeah. being suggested to you. How do you know what's right and what's not right? 
I think it's probably worthwhile dividing the framework. At least that's the framework. Again, I'm a simple guy, so I like simple frameworks into three aspects. The first we can talk about are micronutrients, which are truly supplements yeah. because of the quality of food and soil that we're living in today. Right. The second are uh, zero therapeutic molecules, which have a impact on the cellular machinery around aging, those nine hallmarks of aging. And there are specific molecules that can target and work on those. Yeah. And the third are molecules which I consider primary prevention, yeah. which are to prescribe or perhaps take in order to prevent certain diseases. Mm -hmm. But I'll just caveat all of this by saying that this is not a medical show and we're just right. having a conversation between two friends. That's right. And people should, uh, of, of course, consult their practitioner if they want to try anything. So on the micronutrient side, um, given the food and soil quality, I think some of the things which are really important for people is the first one, uh, and we're, we're sitting and doing this conversation in India, so vitamin B and D, right? There is a massive deficiency of B and D in society. I don't even test sometimes now. Quite often, I ask a person to start, and then we'll do the test in six months just to see where their levels are, right? A vitamin B is non-toxic because it's water-soluble, so provided your kidneys are working well, you'll just pee out anything in excess. Vitamin D can potentially build up, so you need to be a little careful and your doctor can tell you where, whether and how much. But B and D are the, the two first ones. The third one is omega-3. Uh, omega-3 is a good fat. It is part of the cellular membrane around every single cell. It covers our brain, our spinal cord, etc. It's a good form of cholesterol. And it's typically available in fish oils, so this sort of seven seas, krill oil type. And for people who are vegan, you get it in flaxseed oil as well. Mm -hmm. So omega-3 is another critical component from a cellular structure and from an immunity perspective as well. The fourth one is magnesium. Right. right? Magnesium is a very powerful micronutrient for sleep, rest, and recovery, and from a mood and emotional state mm -hmm. as well. There are many salts of magnesium, uh, trionate, citrate. My favorite is biglycinate mm -hmm. and 400 milligrams, yeah. typically taken about 8 p.m. at night. Very powerful uh, um, supplement from a sleep perspective. So these are sort of the bare minimum that I suggest. Uh, and then that list can go on and on and right. on. Um, but I think we get the fundamentals right. and the foundation right, and then we can, we, can, uh, we can build from there. If we look at the second yeah. column, which is sort of the therapeutic, and this is where the People often get excited and I get all the sort of Twitter questions and, and, and Google questions, uh, sorry, emails about is that they'll read things about, let's say, NMN, NR or NAD+. Plus. Yeah. They will read about resveratrol. Right. They will read about metformin. They will read about rapamycin. They will read taurine was in the news mm -hmm. uh, two weeks ago, uh, AKG, etc. So of the data that I've seen, I am relatively convinced about one, which yeah. is something that I personally take, which is rapamycin. Yeah. Rapamycin is very interesting uh, because it uh, it um, has an effect across almost a billion years of evolution. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that rapamycin dosage on a C. elegant worm all the way through to a dog or a primate mm -hmm. has been shown in animal models to extend health span and lifespan right. as well to some degrees by uh, 12 to 25%, right? So of all the molecules out there, rapamycin is probably the leading indicator uh, to be prescribed as a uh, as an anti-aging medication. 
And what's also helpful about rapamycin is it's not new. It's been around for many decades. It's an immunosuppressant. Uh, and so we know some of the consequences and, and, and harms about that. And for anyone interested in learning more, uh, Matt Cablin, Professor Matt Cablin is sort of the, the, the world-renowned expert on the topic. And they can uh, have a look at some of his work around, around rapamycin. That's the first one. The second one, which there is a degree of evidence around, is metformin. Mm. Now, people watching this will be like, oh, that's the diabetic drug that my mom and dad are on. That's right. That metformin is actually discovered for malaria and infectious mm. diseases. Now we use it for, for diabetes. Uh, it works on the AMPK pathway. Uh, it is specifically useful in pre-diabetics and diabetics. So people either pre-diabetic, diabetic, or over the age of 60, 65. And it has a longevity benefit from that perspective. I don't like to use it in younger people who are non-diabetic mm -hmm. or pre-diabetic because there is an exercise flattening effect. Right. It reduces the benefit of aerobic exercise, mm -hmm. which you don't want. Like yeah. You want to get the maximum right. of exercise. And it potentially can cause some uh, acidosis in the limbs as well. But metformin is the second molecule. So these are sort of the two big ones at yeah. the top. And then there's the long tail. Right. The third one that I'll talk about is sort of the NMN, NR supplements, because people ask me a lot of questions about this. And let me also ask you a question about NMN, right? Yes. I mean, so last three, four years, it has really been the news. Four yes. years ago, you know, I read David Sinclair's book, Lifespan. Yes. And he goes on and on about that. You know, I've attended a couple of his talks as well. He's, yeah. I mean, he seems to be absolute convert. And I think, you know, he has really promoted this around the world. Yeah. Um, and given that, you know, he's, he's a professor at Harvard, you know, very well-respected guy, you know, great track record of, you know, publishing, you know, a bunch of things, including some Absolutely. of the original studies yep. about resveratrol and so on. Yeah. So what's your best understanding? Where are we on this? You know, I understand not everyone agrees. Yeah. And there is still, you know, um, some conjecture you know, yeah. when it comes to usage of NMN. I have tried, you know, NAD uh, supplements. Uh, yeah. In fact, I'm currently on one. Yeah. But I have some doubts as well whether, you know, that's the, it's something whether yeah. I'm going, you know, way out there or is there a lot of you know, robust science behind this? So I'll start with the physiological yeah. pathways and then I'll maybe talk about some of the work that David has been doing and talking about. So physiologically, this whole idea really came to be because when they were measuring people who were older, they found that their levels of NAD yeah. were lower than healthy people. Right. Now, what does NAD do? In the mitochondria, there are four complexes. Mm -hmm. Complex one, two, three, four. Complex one, two, three, four is there for what we call the 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 energy creation. The ATP right. happens on the last pathway, and there are shuttling proteins and compounds which exist to move between one, two, three, four. And NAD is a central component of that. Yeah. So it was thought that as you get older, your NAD levels are coming down. Therefore, you're not able to create or produce the right amount of energy. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we supplement with NAD yeah. as a mechanism to counteract that? Now, the problem with this is that if you measure a healthy, active, mm -hmm. elderly individual, yeah. their levels of NAD might not be any much lower than you or I. So we're seeing NAD decline in people who are sedentary and sick. We're not seeing it decline too much in people who are active and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and fit. And therefore, the question really needs to be asked, is it because of aging or is it because of something else that is happening? Right. And if it's not because of aging, then what is the use of giving it in the first right. place? So that was one thing. The next thing that happened was, okay, I can you can't take NAD just, uh, I mean, it's very difficult for you to absorb NAD. Mm -hmm. So there were precursors, so NMN and then NR are the two other uh, molecules of that. 
But if you orally ingest it or um, uh, take it in its supplement form, we don't know what the concentration is in bloodstream and we certainly don't know what the concentration is in the mitochondria. Right. And these are expensive molecules, mm -hmm. right? So we're giving something to individuals where we don't even know if it's reaching the end target sure. cell in the first place. Right? So these were some of the challenges associated with NAD and NMN. I individually do not actually mm -hmm. take NMN or, or NAD. However, I take niacin. Mm -hmm. Niacin uh, is a form of vitamin B3. Yeah. It is also associated with the same complex and pathway, but you get the other benefits of B3 sure. as well. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one thing that I, that, that I do take as an injectable every two weeks rather than as, a, as an oral form. David Sinclair's work. Um, the biggest, um, I wouldn't say contraindication, but the biggest challenge to his work has been the study which he went on to then talk about the effect of resveratrol on the sirtuin pathway mm -hmm. has now been found that the actual efficacy of that resveratrol was down to the binding protein of the immunofluorescent carrier molecule that was there as well. Mm -hmm. And that's not there in the supplements mm -hmm. that we take. And that was one of the reasons right. why people are now saying, well, if it's not there, then does resveratrol truly have um, an effect? I think David is an incredible academic. He certainly has uh, been at the frontier yeah. of human longevity for many, many years and will continue to do so. But I think like all science, it's useful to have a healthy debate right. and, and look at the actual data before taking right. decisions. So this is evolving science. Yeah. And I think you know, definitely podcast is the last place where people should take a recommendation for yeah. what supplements they should consume. Mm. It's definitely a good place to get educated about Absolutely. what's out there, what yeah. people are talking about. But there are a lot of nuances. Yeah. Everyone's you know, individual physiology, the you know, history is very different. Yeah. But I think it's a very exciting area where a lot is happening and one of the newer trend is this rise of, you know, a lot of uh, supplement which comes from Ayurvedic traditions. Yes. the All these Himalayan herbs, you know, I started using both Ashwagandha and yeah. Brahmi supplements. Yeah. But we have to know your take on, yeah. you know, the emergence of these things, which we've been using in Ayurvedic, yeah. both food and medicine for thousands of years now. Absolutely. I think we're living in a, in a world or an age now where technology is able to allow us to validate some of the ancient yeah. wisdoms that we've had. And Ayurvedic medicine is certainly one of those areas. I think what we need to ensure is that the same level of scientific rigor being applied to molecules and pharmaceuticals is being done to micronutrients yeah. and to the Ayurvedic medicines as well. Particularly because there is quite often an interaction between right. these different, uh, particularly with liver enzymes uh, specifically. So um, so I, I pulse on Ashwagandha. Mm -hmm. Actually, we were talking about this earlier, right? This idea of pulsing, which yeah. is where... You don't have it throughout the year. Mm -hmm. You have it for a dedicated period of time, let's say four to six weeks. Yeah. You then come off of it for another four to six weeks and then you go back on it uh, yeah. as well. Uh, so I particularly pulse with Ashwagandha. Ashwagandha has uh, been suggested to have uh, improvements on testosterone. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been uh, suggested to improve sleep, the architecture of sleep, yeah. particularly making you more relaxed. Uh, and then there are some immunity benefits yeah. uh, as well. So um, I, I've, I've used ashwagandha. I haven't used uh, Brahmi myself mm. uh, particularly, but I also like uh, turmeric or curcumin. Yeah, that has got many anti-inflammatory, mm. anti-infectious um, uh, 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 properties. Then there are uh, ginger, uh, ginger as a root, uh, garlic, garlic as well. Garlic, yeah. So there's so many other things I think which sit at the intersection between good food right. and sort of some of these Ayurvedic practices and micronutrient right. supplementation. I think it's a very exciting area. I yeah. think in the coming uh, you know, years or decades, you know, yeah. as we, as you said, like there are more uh, 
uh, clinical trials and more evidence based you know backing of yeah. some of these you know protocols it's yeah. great to see yeah. but some of these things you know which is part of traditional diet yeah. i think those are again you know no regret moves you know yeah. we can just incorporate in the food form absolutely. as opposed to trying the absolutely extracted molecule form you know which yeah. may or may not be you know absolutely beneficial time will tell yeah. i think other area in the longevity space which gets a lot of attention markers is this various kind of therapy so let's go from some simple to complex yeah. simple being you know this proliferation of iv therapies you know there yeah. are these treatment centers at least in the big cities in india yeah. where you know, what's your take on you know in what situations are those useful is this totally placebo because you inject so much micronutrient your body may not be able to consume or absorb you know so what's what's going on there and how yeah. should one think about it so i am a big fan of the placebo effect yeah. because it still makes you feel better sure. and ultimately if you look at the hippocratic oath do no harm <laughs> right right uh but then you want to alleviate suffering yeah. right uh and then and then cure was the third so i think this idea of if there's something that can be done to an individual to make them feel good subjectively yeah. then why not sure. if they're able to afford it yeah uh then why not saying that if you look at some of these they're mainly a hydration pack right. and a lot of the benefit will will naturally be down to the fact that we are living in a dehydrated mm-hmm. state where we're micronutrient deficient right. etc so we can understand why these are of benefit yeah. um these have a variety of different vitamin cocktails right and provided they're not supra physiological yeah. i get a little bit concerned when there are cocktails which are really supra physiological mm-hmm. where we don't know what the what right. the harm could potentially be to individuals um i have not individually tried it however i am currently doing an experiment where i will try it so last weekend i ran 50 kilometers over the course of friday saturday sunday I did no biohacks on myself it was just very simple or normal living and the goal of what I'm trying to understand is from a recovery and performance mm-hmm. perspective so I measured all of my data from sleep I measured all of my performance data of running and I kept a log of my RPE my rate of perceived right. exertion and my subjective scores in four weeks time I will repeat this 50 km mm-hmm. run but this time I'm going to include these IV therapies as well right because i want to see on my own that n equals 1 that's all i can do right now yes. but can i measure a difference in my performance right can i see an improvement in my recovery and can i feel a subjective difference in my yeah. energy levels and my rate of pain particularly yeah. on day 3 when i did the the last stretch so it's an experiment that i'm doing to try and right. first convince myself i always like to try on self before recommending to others so um stay tuned <laughs> all right okay yeah. we'll, we'll definitely stay tuned you'll yeah. have to know i've tried iv therapies few time but yeah. i wasn't convinced right. there probably definitely some placebo for sure sure but uh, unless you are as you said you know nutrition deficient or not hydrated properly but let's see let's see you know how hmm. that specific was so other area which has gotten a lot of traction and yeah. i do think there are a lot of benefits from this is just for recovery you know everything usage of hot yes uh, cold yeah uh, infrared yeah red light yeah and i do incorporate in a lot of these things in my daily weekly you know yeah. protocol what's yeah. your take on some of these in recovery i like them i use them a lot so as well as with executives i do a lot of work with um high level performance athletes ipl cricketers uh etc etc and so these have got a very powerful role to play in what we call the recovery stack yeah. uh what's the differences between uh the different things So heat has a very specific role to play which is very different to cold and I think people sometimes get them mixed up. So heat is very good to put your body into a relaxed phase. Mm-hmm. So the best time to do something like a steam or a sauna 
is actually towards the end of the day yeah. when you want to encourage your body to go into a relaxed phase to get a mm-hmm. good night's sleep. Right. Right. Um, the cold water immersions are best done six hours, four to six hours after the acute insult. If you go and immerse yourself immediately in cold water after a, a big training session or a game, that actually is counterintuitive. Why? Because you've injured yourself. There are micro tears in the bone and the muscle. You want the blood flow to go. You want the macrophages and the immune cells to go there to start to build the recovery. You don't want it to get out of control. So wait for a few hours. Let the natural healing process happen. And then go and immerse yourself in cold water or cryotherapy, right. etc. But it's a very powerful. And game. by acute insult, you meant a rigorous workout. Yes, and not the other day. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes, rigorous workout. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's cold, and I'm a big fan of cold water showers as well. Uh, from that perspective, cardiovascular conditioning, uh, immune modulation, and frankly, just getting you awake and pumped right. out as well. So, so these are, you know, again, depending on how you do it. You know, they are not necessarily very expensive. Absolutely. Especially, you know, yep. I mean. If you live in North, heat yeah. is available, you know, throughout the day. Yeah. And I'm not kidding, you know, yeah. last year, I was in Delhi in June. Yeah. yeah. And it was, I think, 43, 44 degree. And I was thinking, you know, I haven't been out in heat. So I actually went to the rooftop of the hotel. Yeah. And spent 15 minutes walking, which was actually a terrible idea. Because right. I ended up getting a heat, heat stroke. Up. But yeah, but, but yeah, your heat is readily available. Yeah. You can, you know, cold is also, I mean, at this point, I used to just get put you know, a bunch of you know ice in the bathtub, yes. let it melt, yes. and you go in for a few minutes, Absolutely. and you don't have to do Absolutely. expensive you know cryotherapy. But I think these are very little um, harmful side effects, yeah. and then especially people who are you know doing rigorous workouts, etc., yeah. yeah. can incorporate. Yeah. What about little more cutting-edge stuff, you yeah. know, like um, there's a lot of our talk, these are about regenerative medicine. Yeah. They're all kind of, you know, uh, something simple as PRP, you, yeah. know, you can explain that, yeah. exosomes, and then all the way to, you know, stem cell therapy, which could be yeah. either placental stem cells or from your own body. So let's cover this whole spectrum of these yeah. therapies. Yeah, I'll just add about, you, you spoke about wavelength, uh, yeah. wavelength light right. as well, right? So uh, I use that as well. Okay. Uh, and um, the mechanism of action is thought to be that basically it's energy, energy being imparted into yeah. cells, particularly mitochondria to aid recovery and repair. And red light therapy is something that I use. Uh, we have a panel in the clinic um, and... Um, uh, I also have, and we use them for our cricketers as well, so it's, it's something they do after the games. And I also have a version which is uh, more uh, compact, uh, which I can apply around a particular joint, so around a knee or an ankle yeah. or a shoulder, etc. It gives heat uh, benefit, but there's also the red light therapy, which is uh, beneficial as well. So there's some nice advancements happening uh, on, the, on the energy side. Regarding your question, I think it's very important that we take a, un, uh, I mean, when I say we, I mean the scientific community, take an unbiased and objective lens towards what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I say that because of two things. One is that it's very easy to get overexcited because these are cutting edge therapies yeah. that we sometimes drown out the fact of what the data is showing us, mm-hmm. number one. Uh, number two is that these are very expensive treatments. Yeah. And because they're expensive, quite often regulation and, and afford, affordability have led to facilities popping up in parts of the world which are not that well protected, right? right? And I know of people who have visited those places to try and get access to this. And frankly, you don't know what the quality and what the safety associated with those as well, right? So everyone who's watching this who's interested, I think we should be interested and we must continue to invest in good science. But if we are gonna undertake, then make sure we go to an accredited place where we ask for the data 
where we're satisfied with the safety profile and uh, we're doing so fully understanding the risks yeah. associated with that. PRP. So PRP has been, so uh, uh, plasma-rich platelet therapy has been used for a variety of different uh, mechanisms. I've seen it being used for people suffering from hair loss uh, to being, and my wife sees this a lot because she's a sports physio, to being injected into joints after, let's say, an ACL repair mm -hmm. uh, or even maybe to prevent right. uh, an ACL uh, procedure, uh, etc. The data is, in my opinion, inconclusive. Okay. All right. Um, there's a very strong placebo benefit, sure. of course, yeah. and one can never do a double-blinded mm. trial because you're having an injection. <laughs> uh, but so there's a very strong right. placebo benefit, which helps. But what is the long-term benefit? Are we structurally seeing differences in tendon repair? Are we preventing uh, surgeries, etc.? I haven't seen the definitive right. data around that. Mm. So individually, I haven't ever uh, positioned or suggested someone uh, go towards that. Uh, exosomes? Exosomes, again, it's not something that we've had much experience in India. So I can't say I've had any first-hand experience sure. of it. I know it's happening a lot in the US. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's an exciting mm -hmm. area of medicine uh, and, and interventions. Uh, but again, it's all going to be about can we show some definitive scientific data sure. And can we make it in a way which is more adoptable and affordable right. for for? And the area which is getting huge amount of attention, and yeah. maybe we can cover in some detail. Now, first, is starting with you know, what is stem cell, mm. what are sources stem cell, mm. and why they might be you know relevant for certain treatments. Yeah. So when we first existed, it was a sperm and an egg that came together, right? Half of the chromosomes came from our dad, half of our chromosomes came from our mom, and that makes us who we are. And we're just one cell. Yeah. And that one cell has now become this multi-trillion cell that we exist today. So it has to multiply, it has to divide. And as it multiplies and it divides, it needs to specialize because you need certain cells to be the eye, you need certain cells to be the hair, you need certain cells to be the heart. So stem cells is really going back to that original cell, mm -hmm. which is a cell which has the, the ability to be anything else. Yeah. So as we get older and there are more cellular divisions, it gets programmed in a particular way. And after a particular point, it can never go backwards, mm -hmm. right? Or at least that was the theory yeah. until David Sinclair's work where mm -hmm. he's suggesting that you can actually reprogram to as much as further back as possible. So stem cells really came about this, this idea of what can I do with the original cell to then maybe produce a liver for someone or liver cells for mm -hmm. someone or heart cells for another person. And I think it became commercialized about a decade ago when we started taking umbilical samples after the yeah. child was born as a mechanism to potentially protect them. And there's a use case there right. because there are certain forms of cancer which the therapy needs to involve the original individual cells. And we don't have a bank because we can't find it in the individual because they've been, uh, as I said, they've sort of uh, gone too many steps along. So we create a bank where we can go back, use that cell and then use it in these particular cancerous uh, situations. From there, we have now reached where people are using that same logic to potentially inject it into joints mm -hmm. or inject it into the heart or inject it under the skin yeah. uh, to give us sort of rejuvenation and aesthetic changes right. uh, from there again. I think the placebo effect here is going to be lesser. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm personally much more excited right. by this yeah. because there's true science underpinning yeah. the fact that we're taking cells and we're growing them into a particular lineage. Number two is it's true personalization right. because it's specific to your DNA, right. which clearly has to have a benefit yeah. and a role from that perspective. And number three, what I find really fascinating about this is that the same 
uh, uh, scientific or therapeutic capability can impact a wide variety of different disease conditions from myocardial infarcts to potentially diabetes or pancreatic uh, issues all the way up to sort of uh, retinoblastomas and, and, and eye conditions as well. So I think this is a really interesting right. area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, fascinating yeah. if you know if it comes to f- fruition fully. I mean, yeah. the fact that you know you are can extract a stem cell from uh, you know adult body. Yeah, uh, and from what I, what I understand, you can extract them from either fat cells. Yeah. or from your spinal cord. Yeah, and then you can you know, reprogram them to pretty much become whatever cell in the body. Right. Yeah. It's probably hopefully is going to be the ultimate. Yeah. in um, rejuvenation. Yeah. And then, you know, therapy, which I think is definitely controversial and I have neither tried. I only joke with my kids about it. Yeah. You know, young, you know, blood transfusion, right. which some people are doing. I think there's a company, Ambrosia, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. Yeah. in Silicon Valley, probably has shut down. Yeah. Probably rightly so. What do you know about this? Is this something you want to watch out in future for some development? I think the original uh, study came from rabbits. Yeah. And they took uh, old rabbit, uh, young rabbit blood and, in- and injected it in old rabbits, uh, something like this. And they found that these older rabbits were much more uh, energetic, etc. I personally cannot understand how this potentially works really in reality. And I'm, I'm glad lesser and lesser human beings <laughs> are, uh, are, 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 are trying it. Um, I mean, yes, I, as I said, I, I don't have any firsthand uh, knowledge of this. And I do know that lab shut down. Yeah. But you know, look, you know, just I mean, uh, blood donation is anyway supposed to be healthy for all of us. Yes. At some point, you know, this is you know a potential therapeutic pathway in future. You know, if it uh, yeah ends up, you know, if it turns out there's fundamentally something yeah. in a younger person's you know blood, yeah, which is not as you age, it's deteriorating. You know, who knows? You know, maybe. Yeah. But I know there's a lot of work happening in that area as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, as you said, it's it's a, it's an easily available resource, yeah. right? Blood donations is something we're used to. Uh, and particularly now, if we can sort of understand, I think the, the really fascinating th- thing might be, can we identify the biomarker in the right. blood, which is really indicating the old yeah. age, right? And then can we do something about that right. particular biomarker? Because like we have hemodialysis, yeah. there's no reason to suggest once we identify the biomarker, right. we can't create a biological sieve right. and just sort of uh, transfuse, uh, not transfuse, uh, just sort of um, filtrate rather right. than transfuse. From yeah. uh, and speaking of, you know, absolute cutting stuff, right? I'm sure you've, you know, you're well familiar with these so-called Yamanaka factors. Yeah. You know, this person Yamanaka who won mm. Nobel Prize for coming up with these factors, you know, which mm. are part of every cell. Yeah. Basically, if you can reprogram them, yeah. Yeah. you can make the cell believe that I am not a 50-year-old yeah. cell, I am exactly. much, much younger. Yeah. What do you think is happening in that area? And are yeah. there any, you know, hopes yeah. of, you know, yeah. interventions potentially coming up? There are some clinics. I was recently in touch with some clinicians in the UK that is using, so doxycycline, which is a very commonly yeah. used uh, anti, uh, anti-infectious agent, ha- activates two of these four Yamanaka right. factors. So they use that in conjunction with other uh, therapies. So I'm now seeing it yeah. translate into actual clinical practice. Uh, David Sinclair spoke so much about it in his right. book, Lifespan, as well. Uh, and again, it's it's one of those areas which is which is interesting, particularly because the molecules are not these very expensive or out of reach uh, capabilities. Right? It could be simple compounds that we have today existing, which can activate these potential right. pathways. Yeah. yeah. But you know, would uh, would you agree that we are living in this golden age? Yeah. We know so much more about the mechanism of human aging. We have got these, you know, 
lot of different interventions available. Some are absolutely safe, yeah. which are validated by ancient practices. Yeah. Now science is also supporting it. A yeah. lot of stuff which is in the lab, which yeah. seems promising in sometimes animal models. Yeah. Some, you know, even human trials are starting to happen. Yeah. And the whole field is poised to explode in the next 5 to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the biggest things we've seen is the FDA recognition of aging as a disease. Right for Nir Barzilai's work around the TAME study where he's looking at the efficacy of metformin mm -hmm. as an anti-aging molecule and rather than just focus on diabetics yeah. the FDA said yes we're going to recognize the different outcomes of aging and, and use it as a protective yeah. pr potential gerotherapeutic agent right. so that was a big step yeah. for, for yeah. the yeah, so one of the guys you know I like I you know kind of look up to, admire his work, you know, Charlie Munger, he just turned 100. Right. The guy's mind is, you know, as sharp as ever. He's, uh, you know, mm. partner with Warren Buffet. He's right. been, you know, at the helm of Berkshire Hathaway for the last 50 plus years. Mm. And, you know, that's a, you know, great role model to look up to. Like, here's yeah. this guy, 100 year old. Yeah. The brain is as sharp as ever, right? You know, that gives you so many extra decades to whatever you're calling in life. You know, yeah. that's everyone's individual choice yeah. but the fact that it's possible yeah. and he has done it you know yeah. despite without any access to yeah. all these you know longevity therapy which are starting to become available yeah. but it's very fascinating to see you know how this area evolves especially people who are interested in creating long term impact there's absolutely no question that people need to invest in their health at the very least all the basics and the foundations and yeah. then you can learn about you know all the this evolving field maybe experiment with some stuff but uh, I also want to thank you, Marcus, for you know all the work you are doing this space. I think you are a living role model of you know you first and foremost you practice what you preach. You are also able to make a difference in a lot of you know other people's life. You are exploring human biology limits in these all these extreme environments. And I know in many ways you are also just getting started. You know with yeah, the yeah. human edge. You know that's your latest venture. Yeah. Maybe on the closing we can talk about you know what is your ambition yeah. with human edge. Where are you at and where do you want to take this? I went through a personal journey. Um, when the pandemic started, I, like many clinicians around the world, decided to go back as a frontline volunteer. I live in Bombay. I was working with the BMC and uh, I was doing screening efforts in slums uh, when, when we were first fighting the early days of the virus. And then unfortunately, I contracted the, the, the first form. Mm -hmm. I got very sick with it. Uh, and I started to go down a... Age, uh, almost like a rabbit hole of physical and mental health decline because of the symptoms and the problems that I was facing. But then I decided that, you know what, I have this wealth of knowledge that I need to apply to myself. Yeah. And that's when I started to quote-unquote biohack mm -hmm. for myself, on myself, not with the more expensive stuff yeah. that we spoke about, but the simple fundamentals. Right. And I found my journey transformed. I am now sort of physically fitter than I've ever been in my life. I've been able to do things that uh, I didn't think I could. And in that process of recovery and recuperation, I realized that it's my duty to try and democratize this so that many lives can be impacted. Mm -hmm. And that's why I set up Human Edge. Uh, I talk about this mission of democratizing health span by allowing as many of us to get the benefits and not be restricted by... Uh, unaffordability or inaccessibility. Yeah. Information is present, data is ubiquitous. How do we personalize for people at scale and how can we all be healthier, happier versions of ourselves? So that's my mission and I'm really excited. Um, you've got, we've got some incredible people working with us. We've made some fantastic impact, but as you said, we're just getting started. Outstanding. I think this mission of democratizing health span, I think it's a uh 
really relevant and especially for our country yeah. i think it's also very very exciting space uh, if you are able to really make you know healthy long healthy life uh, health span available to the young demographic we have in the country you know there's incredible potential Absolutely. that can be absolutely unleashed you know yeah. the more we talk about you know india century and all of that you know yeah. it cannot happen yeah. without tapping into full potential of yeah. you know that the country has and without you know everyone having access to really good quality long term you know health span i'm sure you will do your bit yeah. but i learned so much from this conversation today marcus thanks so much for taking the time mm. i'm pretty sure a lot of listeners will find it useful and inspiring you know in designing their own health journeys thank you for having me and thank you for inspiring people like me to even be on this journey thanks for being incredible thank you thank you at sparks we aim to bring to you stories of exponential impact We share in-depth analysis of what goes behind success stories. If you find our conversations interesting, you can join us by subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can also listen to Sparks on Spotify, Apple Podcast or any other audio platform of your choice. If you have any suggestions on who we should invite or what topics we need to cover, just let us know in the comments. We are always listening, looking for ways to improve and keep getting better as we go along.